You're listening to the Career Musician Podcast with creator and host, Nomad. With 20 plus years of experience in the music industry, Nomad has done just about everything to earn a living as a career musician. From being music director to celebrity artists, playing iconic arenas and stadiums, composing for film and TV, and even playing your average local club gigs, he's done it all. Nomad's mission is to empower musicians across the globe with strategies for a sustainable career while blasting stereotypes and to bring you tried and true wisdom from his colleagues in this crazy business we call music. Welcome to another episode of the Career Musician Podcast. Today, I have a dear friend slash mentor who knows his way around the touring, mixing sound, lights, production, audio, monitors, staging, setting up, theater, you name it, this man knows it. Picture it. Early 1970s, your boss at the local sound company in which you work tells you you have a phone call. On the other line is Mr. Johnny Cash, and he says, I want you to come and do lights for me. So Johnny and your boss sit there and cut a deal for you to go out on your first big tour with none other than Johnny Cash. That's right. And that's just to name one. Then we're talking John Denver and Paul Simon and the list of legends go on. This is Mr. Mac McDonald, or as I so lovingly refer to him as Uncle Mac. Welcome to The Career Musician. When I say Mac, you know, Uncle Mac, because oftentimes I use that interchangeably. And, you know, you're always okay. in some permutation, you're always going to be Uncle Mac, you know, <laughs> you're always going to be Mikey. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I can't help myself. Right. But no, man, it's cool because it, it, it works. It's perfect because we're a freaking man, right? But we're, yeah, we're nomads. We live all over the place. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, but- and, and, on, and on that note, we are going to welcome Uncle Mac to the Career Musician Podcast officially. <laughs> I'm so glad to have you on the show, man. This That what a perfect uh, segue. <laughs> <laughs> That's hysterical. And thank you for having me. I love this. And uh, not being a musician, you know, I, find, I found it interesting that you would invite me on your show. Well, let, let me let, let me let me uh, address that head on. Uh, correction: You are a musician. Uh, it's just your instrument is different. Okay, so you know, obviously, we understand the context of being a musician, applying uh, you know your appendages of some sort to play a musical instrument. Well, you use your appendages to mix knobs and faders. You're still playing a musical instrument. I one would argue, you know, even in the grander sense. Because you're taking the whole collection of the instruments and, you know, quote unquote, playing them again through EQ and compression and these things. So I do believe that engineers are musicians. Well, (laughs) and and I will say one thing that, you know, that separates a lot of us. And this isn't, you know, just ego speaking, but a lot of us uh, in my world either started off as a player or started off wrapping cable and humping gear and don't know anything about playing. And that right there to me separates a knob twiddler from a mixer. Mm. That makes sense? That makes great sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going, well, it's like if I do this at this frequency and add this and that and whatever, it's like, dude, listen to music. You know, just mix it. You know, mix the show. Mix the music. It's uh, There's a whole lot of, lot of that going in there. And my grandmother was a piano teacher. And so my father 
uh, and she lived right down the, uh, the street from us in this little bitty town in Nebraska, you know, so she was, uh, she was a piano teacher. And so there was music in the household. Always my father sang, his brothers and sisters sang. And so then I started taking piano lessons in third grade. And in fifth grade, I started playing trumpet. And so I had piano and trumpet going for me and I played trumpet all the way through college. Um, and, and continued to play piano. And as you know, you know, my hands don't work anymore, so I don't play either one of them. But it's still the simple fact that, A, I do read music, and B, I understand and speak music fluently, you know, the language of that. So I know when to come in and to actually work with the dynamics and whatever. And again, that's just, you know, two different ways of looking at it. So uh, you may, you know, may be able to, you know, the other side of that coin, you know, can do some spectacular, you know, technical things to the signal to where it's like, oh, dear God, how did you do that? Right. But then it's like, well, that's the only instrument I hear, you know, is that snare drum or that kick drum or that bass guitar or whatever, you know, and, it, and the music doesn't flow. So, yeah. so shame on you for saying you're not a musician. You are. <laughs> no, I never. <laughs> so, I mean, but, but, but. You're enlightening me. You know? <laughs> yeah. But in, in, in the truest sense of, of, of the existentialism of music, right? So we're zooming, yeah. zooming way out. We're saying, look, I don't care whether you actually have some, some, some uh, hours logged on actual instruments, trumpet, piano, like you mentioned, or if you just have hours logged as an audio technician with the biggest ears in the biz, you know, right. I think it's all encompassing. I, I agree with you that there is, the, you know, the, the person who just knows how to wrap cables and evolved into a knob to a little bit still, they have to have some deep understanding of music and how the instruments work. And, you know, so look, you know, I, I'm going to have a, a lighting director on the show. I'm going to have a tour manager on the show. Uh, you know, I've already had tour managers on the show. You know, so the career musician, as it encompasses everybody in the industry, because let's face it, you're one of the guys who taught me this. You better damn well treat the janitorial staff just as nicely as you treat the artist you're working for. You treat yeah. everybody in the friggin' building with the same courtesy and respect. Right. That, that's huge. That is huge. And you know what? I got to say that, you know, my entire career, there's only been a few people that I just like, oh, man, get me off of this tour. I can't stand it. I can't take it. And if you talk to me like that again, I will make you sound like, well, whatever. Um, <laughs> you can curse, man. You can curse. It's fine. <laughs> You like that, yeah. you know, the little thing that I can twist up here and your voice <laughs> is octave, you know, whatever, but it's, uh, you know, they, it just, uh, the, the complete, and of course, and that goes both directions, you know, if you don't respect, but let me say this, you know, the, and, uh, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, dogging people that don't have musical experience. I mean, that's not, you know, that, that's crazy. Of course, of course. You have to be technical. I mean, I, you know, I, I have to know how all this stuff works. But if you don't have a passion right. for what you're doing, do not do it. And that's one of the things that a lot of my friends that don't read music, that have not played whatever, their passion for the music is absolutely unsurpassed. I mean, even to the point of where uh, it's like, will you stop talking about music? 
all over it, you know. <laughs> but you know that it, it, it literally that, and that's what it comes down to. And that doesn't make any difference. I mean, think of how many spectacular musicians that we know and that we've worked with that don't read music. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I say that all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's crazy, you yeah. know, so get off your freaking high horse, put yeah. your snuff in your back pocket and move on. That's right. Yeah. That's it. Uh, well, that, let me just say this again to start. I feel like it's important for the, for the audience, the listening audience to understand that, you know, so Mac and I go way back. He, like I said, you are responsible for teaching me a lot about how to conduct myself, especially on the road, because we met, uh, Mac was the production manager. Well, first of all, hats off. You were the production manager, the front of house engineer, the tour manager, and the stage tech, and the backline tech. Uh, you, you wore four hats, okay? And, and what? And lighting guy. Oh, and lighting director. That's right. So you wore five hats for, you know, Kirk Whalum, who's the great jazz, gospel, R&B, blues, sax player that we worked for. So that's when I met you. And I did eight years in that camp. And yes. this was at my very early 20s. You know, uh, in well, I would say early to mid twenties into my early thirties, and if it wasn't for those eight years, I would not be as well equipped as I am today. And one of the main things, you know, there's two types of teachers. There's the silent type that you learn from them just by watching because they don't really talk much, right? And that was Kirk. Kirk wasn't a big talker, but I learned so much from him because just by watching what he did and how he interacted with everybody and everything. As did I. Right. As right. Big. Now, you and I were different because we're both talkers. So we'd always be chatting it up and you would always give me this enlightening advice. And I'd be like, well, damn, I never thought of it about that. Number one. But number two, you took it a step further. You reprimanded me when <laughs> I needed to be reprimanded. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that shit is real because what I was, and, I, and this is my, my favorite example. You get up on stage, it's sound check, right? We didn't have, you know, we didn't have text, personal text. Now, of course, I, we, you and I have both worked on tours. Well, everybody has their own tech, but uh, in this case, we didn't have text. So we go on stage, we'd, we'd be humping our gear. I'd have a guitar. I'd have two guitars and a pedal board and I'd always get backline amps, right? And I remember there was like a couple times where I bitched about the backline. Oh man, they gave me this piece of shit. Why didn't they give me the XYZ? I requested the, hey Mac, you know on the rider, I tell you to get me. And you're like, Mikey, come here. Let me tell you something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, so that's just one example. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, and I, and I look back at uh, one time, I, I made a uh, I made a promoter cry, uh, and she and she was a lovely lady. But we walked into this venue in Detroit, and the back line was all from the band that had played there the night before, because there was a keyboard, there was a drum kit, there was a bass amp, and there was a guitar amp. Yeah. But it was, it looked it was right out of uh, the Mattel catalog, if you will. Yeah. You know that stuff, and 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 I had you know I've got good friends in Detroit that always do my back line and do my audio, whatever. And she had, she called them and canceled and said, we'll just use the band stuff. And I looked at her, you know, and I just, I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I said, where's my gear? Well, here it is. And I went, no, that's not our gear. That's not what we ordered. You know, cause eh, you know, whatever. And I looked at her and I said, do you think I'd do this for my health? You know, and she went, 
<laughs> you know, and it's like, oh, dear God, what have I done? You know, and, yeah. and, and Kurt aside, and he said, listen, God has cursed some people <laughs> with alcoholism, with drug addiction, with gambling, and he cursed you with a lack of patience, and I suggest you get some now. And it's like, yes, sir. And, wow. you know, and that, uh, that right there, a life lesson, you know, just yeah. take a breath, step back, and fix it. You know, it's, God damn, man, it's not the end of the world. I was going to say, at the end of the day, we're not surgeons. We're, you know, we're yeah. not saving people's lives here, no. you know. No. Yeah. I, uh, I, I likened it to, uh, I had a, I had a, a, a drummer one time <clears throat> that, little twisty, uh, actually always twisty, and would complain or whatever. And so one afternoon, I just was casually going around, setting up the mics on the kid and up there tuning him. And he goes, this is crap. This is stuff. These heads are the worst and blah, 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 this other thing. And I said, hey, what was the first drum kit you got for Christmas as a kid? He goes, oh, man, it was was pretty wild. You know, and so he went on and described it. And I said, was that probably the happiest day of your life? said, you don't believe it. It started my career. And said, okay, from here on out, that's the drum kit you get every single show. So you can bring back that happy memory of having a drum kit for the first time. All right? That's a great exercise. That is great. Yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, well, I'm sorry. I apologize or whatever. Uh, never bitched a day after that, you know. Right, but, right. That's brilliant. Yeah, it's the the psychology of being in this business is uh, is 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 pretty uh, pretty frightening sometimes. Well, you said you said the p word, the psychology of it. All right, so so now we set the stage. That's how you and I met. I just wanted everybody to understand that. Um, So I'm going to get to some some questions that I want to ask you, and I want people to hear. Um, you kind of give us a little bit about, you know, your inspiration for music, your mom being a piano teacher. And like you said, you played trumpet. Oh, your grandma. Okay. And then you played trumpet through high school. Um, Was that basically your inspiration or was there a moment or, you know, a band or an artist where you heard and you were like, oh my God, I have to do that, you know? Well, uh, again, being two years younger than God, uh, (laughs) we had the, uh, (laughs) the Ed Sullivan show. Uh, Always had fabulous musicians on there, right. you know, great, great musicians. And my father had a voice. He had, swore to God, no falsetto, a beautiful baritone into an Irish tenor. And it was not a falsetto. He had that octave, couple octave range where he could go there. And Christmas times at my grandmother's house as a child with his brothers and sisters, she playing the piano and them singing in two, three, four part harmony sometimes was one of the most, that to me right there is, and I just got goosebumps, man, thinking about that. You know, I'm a kid, I'm five, six years old and I'm hearing these voices and listening to my grandmother play, she would let me sit on the bench next to her, you know, Um, was, was probably my first inspiration. And my dad loved big band and he loved jazz. Nat King Cole was his favorite singer. He loved Nat King Cole. He loved that man. And so whenever be on television, on Ed Sullivan or whatever, other any of the other variety shows, it was like, everybody quiet. You know, Nat's going to You know I mean? It was, it was almost like that. You know, we would watch it. And then, of course, watching that first Beatles performance on Ed Sullivan, that was like, you got to be kidding me. That's like nothing I've ever heard, nor has the rest of the world. 
And being in Nebraska, we have nothing like that. It was a lot of polkas, let's say that. Uh, so that that was you know life changing also for me to hear those sounds and to hear it uh, as rough as it was. The way that they played, even though it was amazing, it was still rough versus all of the big band that I had, you know, that we listened to in the house, you know, all of the jazz musicians that we had in the house you know, that we listened to on that thing. And all of a sudden, you're, you know, going on. And going, yeah. okay. you know, it's like, I kind of like that. So, right. yeah, there influences through the years. And um, I just, I, I really... I don't know. It's kind of crazy. And here's what's whack is that when I got into college, as much as I loved playing and as much as I wanted to do it, um, I wasn't a music major and I had really no interest in doing it other than as a release. And I wound up being a freaking theater major. And so my degree is basically lighting design. And of course, when you light people, you go, wow, they just turn real yellow and ugly. So <laughs> I had to learn about makeup and matching color. You know, when you put a light on a person, the temperature of the light versus that and also the, the costume color. So uh, lighting design and uh, with an emphasis on makeup design also. Graduate from college, sound company in Kearney, Nebraska, by the name of Stanel Sound Limited, um, was there. And at that time, they were one of the three largest in the world in Nebraska. The other was Shoko in Dallas, Littis, Pennsylvania, had Claire Brothers, and Stanley, Stan Miller was in, uh, was in Kearney, Nebraska. And so I was on my way to New York, wanted to sell, uh, go, I wanted to go to New York to get my, uh, uh, my union membership in the, in the lighting design union. And so I wanted to live, they had a friend that lived there already, wanted to get there without having to get a job you know, on that kind of thing, you know, so I wanted to save up enough money so I could live and pay rent, whatever. And, uh, so I wound up selling organs and demonstrating organs at a mall. And one of the guys that I had, it was two years ahead of me, walked through, it was doing a, something in the mall and he walked by, Hey, how you doing? Well, I said, you still work for Stanley? He was, yeah, get me the hell out of here. You know, <laughs> it's like, is he hiring? And I said, yeah, a couple of guys moved to L.A. I went into the back room, got on the phone call, or got on the phone, called their office. I was in another town 60 miles away and said, well, yes, Stan's in town, and he'll see you today at 4 o'clock. It was 2 in the afternoon. And so I looked at my boss, goes, yeah, yeah, I got the flu. I got to go. <laughs> and so I absolutely blasted out of there. And that was on a Friday afternoon, and I left for my first tour Monday morning. He gave me a shot, a two-month tour on that thing. And Dude, that's incredible. So Okay, so... so, so, so all here, it comes full circle, and I'm back in music again, you know? Okay, okay but I want to... I just... I, I need to really, uh, you know, <laughs> take that apart a little bit and, and focus because that's tenacity, that's being proactive, you know, that's uh, ambition, you know, all of these things. You're saying, you know what, I'm not going to wait. I'm just going to grab the bull by the horns. And I'm going to jump. Um, you make the phone call. You're there two hours later. Two days later, you're on your first tour. Yeah. I mean, that's, come on. And that's what it takes to be in this business. You have to be willing to jump at the, at the flick of a switch, man. 
And you know what else? Here's the thing about that interview, and I will never forget this ever as long as I live. Uh, I waited two hours. He finally got to see me at six. I didn't really, I understand, I knew, I knew who he was, because I used to light all the concerts and they, it, they came through the college and they did the audio, of course, so I'd known Stan for a long time, but I didn't truly understand who this man was. Right. And I'm sitting yeah, it's just like, what is, yeah, I'm an insulted, you know, I'm kind of, and it's like, just breathe, you know, just breathe, whatever. It's like, all right, Stan, I'll see you now. Come on in. And he sat down and he looked at me and uh, he said, you're a lighting guy. And I went, That's why, because I had my resume with me and everything. He goes, he goes I hate lights. You know, <laughs> I went, oh, that's, oh, I'm not applying for a lighting job. He goes, I hate lights, all right? Don't ever bring up lights to me ever. You understand that? I hate lights. They make noise. They're the bait of my head. So he went on for a couple <laughs> And I'm mortified, you know, but we sat there and he knew that I knew absolutely nothing about audio because this was 70s, right? Early 70s. And it was an infancy. The, you know, the, the business was just, you know, coming around and things were exploding. And he wanted to know who I was. You know, do you have any addictions? Are you married? Are you engaged? Uh, what's your family like life? What are your parents like? What's your favorite, uh, uh, what's your favorite food? You know, do you speak any foreign languages? You know, all this other kind of thing. I mean, we went through and he did basically a psychological interview Mm -hmm. as opposed to a technical interview. And the one reason he hired me is that I spoke fluent theater. I was a student technical director. I could direct a crew. And so when I got out there, I could point and tell up here, I knew from stage left, from stage right, I knew upstage, downstage, I knew, you know, the, the, all of the technical stuff and could communicate with stage hands. And that's the reason he put me out there. And, um, and that was, uh, that was unbelievable. Wow. I mean, it, it, that first, that first tour was, was spectacular. And, uh, I, I just, don't ever, ever deliver me from this, ever, ever. This is what I need to be doing with the rest of my life. And it worked out, sort of. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd, it I'd say it worked out, yeah. It really is. I've always been able, and you know, you bring up tenacity. I'm, I'm glad you did that. And I, I never thought of myself as tenacious, if you will, but I always thought of myself, you'll be able to figure it out. You know, if when you're in trouble, it's like, oh, dear God. And I'm been in trouble a lot as we all have, you know, financially, you know, physically with, uh, you know, with my rheumatoid and whatever, all this kind of thing. And people telling me, no, 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 you know, and when I left Kurt's tour, um, I spent, uh, I was teaching, you know, uh, at an audio school and then that school closed down. They sold the, uh, sold the school. And so in 2017, I spent the entire year unemployed. It's three years ago. And I mean, unemployed. And I sent out God knows how many resumes and discovered that I'm too qualified and I'm too old. Ageism came in. But did I give? No, I didn't give up. You know, you keep looking around and go, well, what's on that corner? And it's like, you know what? I haven't looked in town, you know, because I'm looking at the road. I'm looking out, you know, I need to be on the road. And it's like, well, dude, you're in town. You know, you're you're in this glorious town of Austin, Texas with with music and it turned out I was opening a jazz club. And so, I mean, there you go, Austin, that's one of the big music towns. Absolutely. Oh yeah. So, uh, yeah. 
and it's we've been open. Uh, we opened in eighteen. Wow! Yeah. But it, it's uh, and it, it's a spectacular room. I mean, it's acoustically designed. Uh, Steve Dewar uh, did the design, and he's you know just he's a globally famous uh, acoustician, and and plus we tweaked it. But anyway, tenacious. Uh, in in one word, in in one form of it, there's a lot of different you know ways you can look at tenacious, and uh, not like a bulldog, but you know more think it out and don't be don't be discouraged. Mm. You know, people are going to say no to you a thousand times before you're going to get that yes. Absolutely, and 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 what you know, t- tenacity with diplomacy and patience, and like you know, and that determination to just keep going, relentless, unrelenting. You know, yes. yeah. Yeah, you know what I had on my on um you know uh, my little in my teaching career in this it was an audio school and it was a uh, uh, I, I was the uh, the department chair of the live sound division I pretty much developed the live sound program for that thing but when you walked in there were three or four things on on my blackboard that I told anybody if they ever erased them I would see that they got fired. <laughs> what, number one was don't be a dick. Yeah. <laughs> You know? I love that. I love that. Yes. Simple as that. You know, don't don't go there. Don't be that person. Yeah. Uh, it's just. Uh, and you think about it, how many times have you walked on a stage? Oh. You know, everybody's smiling. Everybody's having a great time, and then somebody shows up and it's like whatever. Then all of a sudden, it all just everybody goes south, and it becomes quiet. Nobody's happy. The show sucks. Um, sound check is a nightmare and it just, it's hell for everyone. Well, I, and now I'm going to, I'm going to tell on myself here. I, uh, <laughs> I'm guilty. I'm guilty of being that guy from time to time who walks on the stage, you know, but there's a, let me, let me, let me quantify this. There's, there's a fine line. There's a fine line. Sure. So as a music director, it's your job to make sure that once your production manager gives you the green light to take the stage as a band, then now the, now the, the ball is in the music director's you know, court, so to speak, and it's up to the music director to get that sound check done as quick as possible so that you know, the next act can do their check or so whatever the crew has to do, the house crew and everything, uh, but also make sure that the artist that you're working for is comfortable and happy, right? Um, so you, as the music director, you have to have a really good relationship with the production manager, the front of house, the monitor, you know, you have to have a really good relationship with the entire crew to make sure that you guys work together seamlessly. Right. Absolutely. So there's been times where, you know, I would get mad where the production manager didn't give me a heads up. Hey man, it's a disaster over here. We're not going to be ready for, for you guys to take stage until I said two o'clock. It's more like four 30. You know, so, so I, you know, the whole band shows up at two o'clock, all happy and ready to get on stage. And I'm like, oh shit, guys, sorry. Uh, they're not gonna be ready for another two hours or so, you know, and the whole, you know, so how many times have I gotten into it with a production manager or a stage manager or a friend, you know, whatever. And it, it happens. Look, when we say don't be a dick, we mean, don't take that on. And, you know, uh, how would you say, uh, just don't do it. Adopt that persona. Don't adopt yeah. that persona. Right. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you can't uh, engage and interact with people. And if you have to get a little forceful or strict, then you have to do it. But right. there's a there's a time and place. And, you know. And there's a lot of times you just have absolutely no, no control over any of it. 
you know, as, uh, you know, being, being the production guy where I walk in and my stage in my, in my writer, uh, it said stage needs to be wired backline in place according to stage plot, blah, blah, blah monitors, you know, type of thing. Don't ring them out. I'll do it. You know, all what have you, uh, or whatever my position on that particular tour might be. Right. But all of a sudden you walk in and there's nothing on stage. And you, and you, you with me witnessed that yes. more times than once, you know, it just, do you remember that show in, uh, in, in South Africa? Um, which one? It was the, uh, the one up North. Were you on that particular tour? I, I did two, I did two South or South Africa tours with Kirk. Where we walked into the opera house, it was spring day. And it was uh, it was like a ten hour drive from Johannesburg up through the mountains into this town, um, and and we go in and we're playing this spectacular, you know, beautiful, beautiful room, you know, but it's in the middle of nowhere, yeah. and they had to take two old consoles and tie them together, and they didn't have enough mic cable for the whatever, and the, you know, Santos, John Santos was on that. Yeah. And his song is none of them matched, and you know, and he and John was, John was, you know, it was a wow, and and McCurley was playing drums, and he's kind of, he's like, okay, cool, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I was there, yeah, yeah, It was just one of those days. We started the show, we had to let the the audience in because right. it was a zillion degrees. It was spring day, heading into summer, right? Everybody wore red. And so we got everybody in there and I sat back and I took a breath because the crew was working way above and beyond their technical skill set. They had never done a show as big as ours on that particular one. And so we were having fun, if you will, (laughs) you know, just upping them along and doing whatever. And it's like, guys, you know, go away and do whatever. And they come back, the band, you guys come back and we're still, missing probably 16 channels, you know, stuff that, that we're trying to, you know, just doing this kind of beating on a snake and on the back of the board and God knows what else. And so Kirk starts off just playing his horn and right. a whole lot of thousand people came down. Do you remember that? Yes. 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 Well, absolutely. I just looked at him and went, boom, thank you, boss. You know, you, cause that's, it's innate ability within that man to be able to calm and deliver. Absolutely. So we got, we got that thing going and I had five and I was kind of in the middle and I had about five or six women on this side and four or five women on this side, all dressed in red and they danced the entire show and they would <laughs> grab me and they would pick me up, you know, and we're doing it. And it was just, I had the best time of my life right. on that horrendously miserable technical day, but right. it, you know, that's all. That's that's what it. That's what it's about. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh my God! It was nuts. Yeah. You, that's the encapsulation of what music is because it doesn't matter what the circumstances uh, dictate. Uh, the music should should just take everybody's spirits to a whole nother level. Yeah. Oh man! And and the other thing was that uh, we were under a curfew because that town had a curfew and everyone had to be home by. Uh, 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock or something like that. Yeah. 
And, and so we had to, we had to, you know, it's like, Oh, we're doing 12 minutes show here. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Good night. You know? <laughs> so we, I mean, we were, you know, so aware of that. And, uh, but anyway, I think, that's the, I think that's the tour that I went. I wonder if that's the tour that I went on safari and I was, I was holding snakes and, petting snakes and all that. I still have some, I have some old, old pictures of that. But yeah, anyway, that was, man, we had such a good time. Oh my goodness. Working all those years with Kirk. We've, we've been so many places and, you know, it was just a blast. Those jazz cruises. <laughs> oh, the jazz cruise. That's where I cut my teeth on the jazz cruises, quote unquote. I remember the first jazz cruise we did. Bro, oh, wait a minute. I got to tell this story. <laughs> so it was my, it was my birthday and uh, we were going to be on this cruise for a week. It was the first jazz cruise. And apparently the ship that we were commissioned for originally uh, wasn't working. So we had to get, uh, you know, a, a sub ship. So we got another cruise ship, one that we weren't supposed to get anyway. And everybody in the industry called it the floating beer can. Like <laughs> the ship. In other words, this ship was not that technically savvy and not that advanced, right? So anyway, we went on the ship. We had a great time. It was my birthday. So we get on the ship and you look at me and you're like, hey, it's your birthday. Here we go. Shots of Jameson starting right now. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Jameson, Jameson definitely cured me. Now here's the thing. The original one, we did it in at what was the, sh the club in Nashville that closed down? Nashville, Tennessee. We played the, the amazing jazz club, but the, it's since closed. I came in, in what? In Nashville? In Nashville. I came in sick as a dog. Uh, I had the flu, the worst flu ever, but we had to do the show, obviously. And mm -hmm. this is when, bro, this is when you, I had just started with you guys. This is when you introduced me to Jameson. The very first time you said, come here. You said, come here, young man, come here. You brought me to the bar. We, we were doing sound check and all that. And uh, you said, excuse me, bartender, would you do me a favor and set my man up here with a hot toddy with Jameson? Bro, I had that hot toddy with a couple shots of Jameson in it, and I, and I got through the show, and that was it. I've been hooked on Jameson because of you ever since. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> or I apologize, one or the other. <laughs> now I've stopped drinking it since because you know it gets it gets pretty heavy, you know. But <laughs> wind up with a bottle and a straw, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like a Dr Pepper, right? <laughs> yep. uh, anyway, uh, all right. So hey, you know something I want to ask you about. Um, speaking <laughs> of all this touring and experience and and the psychology of it, you used to talk about all the time uh, your years with John Denver. So, um, you know, can you talk about that a little bit? He was a client of our sound company, and Ernie Zeilinger was the crew chief and John's front of house on that. And I was a, uh, a wire tech on that, wire stage, put it up, put the PA up, do all of that kind of thing, you know, move from there, and eventually was sort of moving up into the ranks. I never mixed the show, but, you know, there were so many parts of it I mean, there was one tour where we had a full orchestra with us, and uh, uh, Lee Holdridge was out, you know, conducting because uh, Lee had done, you know, had done the record, <clears throat> and we had we had uh, four giant stained glass, uh, twelve foot and sixteen foot columns of stained glass with screens, big screens between them, and set up behind the screens were slide projectors and sixteen millimeter film. 
So it was a huge show that we were doing on that thing big with the, uh, you know, with every city, you know, Lee would bring in a, you know, a, an orchestra and that thing to, to watch that whole thing come together. I mean, I'd been with a company for a bit, you know, so I, I, I knew my job and I knew what to do and I need to do it now, you know, cause Ernie was depending upon it. Cause Ernie would fly the rig, you know, as all front of house, you know, crew chiefs, whatever you fly it because that's where you want it and whatever. So we would help him do that. But I would also help with, you know, kind of guide load in, you know, put it here, put it there, do this, unpack things, get it ready, put stuff in line so Ernie could get it flown. And then once it was there, then do the patch. And, you know, you're patching an orchestra, you know, plus John's band. Wow. And it was it was pretty insane. Um, and this is circa? Uh, mid-70s. So this is really before the technology, it, you know. You know. Yeah, it was yeah. nuts. Absolutely crazy. How Blaine was John's drummer on that thing. Wow. Uh, so we had, you know, we had Hal out there and, and Hal was so good to the crew. It was amazing on that, on one run, on one run on that thing, we did 46 shows in 42 days. And we would do a run, take a day off to get to the next part of the country. We'd go up into Canada, do seven days up there, come back down and do what, you know, I mean, it was nuts. We wound up in Los Angeles and Hal, uh, Hal had a, had a party out at his house. Uh, up in wherever wherever you live, I can't remember. We were just yakking and you know talking about this, that, and the other thing. And it was a pool party and a barbecue, and you know it was all catered. It was great. It was a blast. We just the band, the crew, everybody. You know, we all hung together. That was there was no separation. You know, so uh, just talking about you know the the wall of sound. You know, and him. You know, being you know the guy. You know, right. on so much of that music. He goes, well, come here, I'm going to show you something. So about half a dozen of us walk up into the house, and he takes us back into an office, which is about the size of my living room, about the size of your room there. You know, it's anyway, it's a large room, if you will, floor to ceiling, wall to wall, gold and platinum records. Oh, my gosh. And I just, I looked at that thing, and then, I mean, I knew who, I knew Hal Blaine, you know, I mean, it was yeah, whatever. Yeah. But I'm looking at that with, oh, God, you played on that record? You were the, oh, man, that's an iconic drum part. You you invented that, you know, just, and so a lot of that came together. But here's the thing about that tour that I absolutely loved is the simple fact that John knew everyone's name. Hi, this is Mac McDonald, and you're listening to the Career Musician Podcast with my old tour mate, Nomad. Go behind the scenes with host Nomad to gain inside knowledge of entertainment business from the world's leading musicians, artists, producers, managers, and more. Binge previous seasons of the Career Musician Podcast and subscribe for all new episodes. He knew everybody and he hung out with everybody. And he had a <laughs> the first thing off the back of the semi, the first truck in, was the ping pong table. <laughs> and we built it in our shop, you know, in our sound company. We built this ping pong table to be roadworthy. It probably weighed about 300 pounds because <laughs> it's all made out of angle iron and three-quarter inch, no void, 13-ply, bolting birch plywood. You know, <laughs> we 
coats of green on it because it had to be on the road. And then we built, because we built our own cases, and they were made out of fiberglass. You know, it was, uh, again, you know, like the three-eighths or five-eighths, depending on, three-eighths ply, I think, is what most of them were. And then we sprayed uh, glass over, chopped glass. No seams, no nothing. And you could sit there and chop on it, you know, with an ice pick, and you wouldn't damage the front of it. So gear was protected. So this ping-pong table had its own case. So it would come off, we'd take it over, set it up, and then John would come in and play ping-pong and do whatever you know, kind of deal. And he'd always invite everybody to play and, you know, if you weren't busy and, you know, stuff like that. So that's how he relaxed. Uh, that's but that's he, smart. Uh, that's really but, smart to, it, to build that in. Yeah. It did. But, and, yeah. and the other thing is that he took such good care of the crew. You know, we had our own, we had our own uh, dining room, uh, you know, in the, in the uh, uh, catering thing, where it's crew only. No band involved. You could not go in. Tour manager, John, and whatever, uh, you know, management happened to be out. Jerry Weintraub was managing him at the time. Wow. And so they would, uh, John would always come in and hang out at dinner for a little bit. And then, you know, then go be with the band and talk about the show that night or whatever. But he, uh, he took, and, and we were the fattest crew on the road. <laughs> <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know? And I'm not talking Mickey D's, you know, it just, <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> it was like, that's a prime rib, you know. So, yeah, anyway, it was. But but musically, he always had spectacular musicians. Um, when Elvis died, when he passed away, we uh, uh, we got uh, Glenn D. Harden, James Burton, and uh, Emery Gordy Jr. from Elvis's band. Wow! You know, joined John and Jim Horn was on saxophone at the time. And um, these are legendary career musicians, man. Legendary, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and 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 I cannot explain to you how hard that has hit me these last four or five years. When a lot of these people are putting out books, a lot of them but we lost Hal, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these people have passed away, and it's like, oh dear God, I toured with him. Yeah. You know. I knew him. I mean, we hung out. We we ate dinner together. We did things. I got to know these guys. Right. And if you did your job well, you were respected. If you didn't, then you just very very silently disappeared, and were never seen from or heard from again. Uh, right. But but yeah, John was. Uh, oh man, when he did the uh, the song Calypso, uh, we ran footage. We had footage of uh, of him and Jacques Cousteau you know, on that thing. And cause he wrote that song for the, his Jacques Cousteau's boat, Calypso. Oh, it, It's one of those things of where uh, I literally would come from backstage from my little spot backstage during the show. I would come out and sit with Ernie at the console just to hear him sing that song. And, and just like, you know, you know, Hey, I'm not a singer, but well, anyway, it was, yeah. And and the band, and the, oh my God, it was uh, little things like that, you know, were, were pretty right. amazing. Right. It's, uh, I just looked it up. Calypso, a song written by John Denver in 1975 as a tribute to Jacques Cousteau uh, and his research ship, the Calypso. Yeah. The Listen. song was featured on Denver's 75 album, Wind Song. Yeah. Wow. Look at that. So cool, man. So, so that was that like the the first real big tour that you did and was it international or was it just domestic? Yeah, it was global. It was global. You know, my first tour was Johnny Cash. That, that's the one that I went out on. 
You know, my first, I left Monday with, with cash. That's the two-month tour you did with cash? <laughs> on, on, on and off for a while. Um, wow. John, John fired his lighting director uh, in, the, in the middle of a tour, and he called up uh, Stanley and said, uh, called me up and said, you be my lighting guy because you know about that stuff. You know, we were back in, in Kearney at the office, and so um, I said, John, I, I work for Stan, you know, I work for Stan. I'm, you know, I, uh, I, I love the company. I love Stan. I love all the guys I work with, you know, and everybody. And, and he said, well, let's get Stan on the phone. <laughs> so those guys pretty much negotiated a deal with me on the phone. It's like, I'm here guys. You know, and they, uh, you know, and put me back out. And so, so hold on went, a minute. So hold on a minute. Johnny Cash was like, no Mac, I want you to be my lighting director. Yeah. Cause he knew that I knew how to do <laughs> Yeah. That's amazing, bro. That crazy. <laughs> so how long how long were you out with cash? Oh my goodness. I was out there on and off with him probably three or four years, somewhere in that neighborhood. I, I when my rheumatoid kicked up, that pretty much ended a lot of my road stuff because uh, you know, the doctor said you can't lift equipment anymore. And I went, <laughs> you don't know what I do for a living, Sparky. You know, and he said, No, you don't. You know, so it's like, oh man, I'm gonna have to think for a living now. You know, I don't want to be smart. You know, so anyway, um, so I wound up going out in different positions. You know, on on some of these tours, and with uh, uh, with John, that was uh, you know doing his lighting thing. But unfortunately, the uh, the account went away um, in the middle of that. And that's uh, another story, but yeah. <laughs> what was it like? But uh, yeah. the, the I came home from uh, where I literally, my hands got so bad that I almost couldn't move them was, uh, was a Paul Simon tour. Oh. And that was that still crazy after all these years tour uh, doing that thing. So if and, we, if we, if we just, let me just interject real quick. If, even if we stop the interview right here, Johnny Cash, Paul Simon, John Denver. I mean, that's that's such a terrible resume, Mac. Jeez. <laughs> I mean. But you know what? Only for a you know that that whole deal. You know, the touring with them. Um, that part physically being on the road with them, you know, was only about you know three four years. Yeah. You know, because of you know the artists, you know, kind of deal. But I stayed with the company for a long time, and you know, and then from there, Stanley. God, man, I will forever love this man. Uh, he turns 80 this year, you know, he just turned 80, you know, we still keep in contact. He was my first mentor. I mean, That's big awesome. professional mentor and still is today. He's a genius. First got to fly a PA first got to use, uh, he pretty much invented the snake, you know, it's like, why am I putting, you know, 16, you know, 200 foot XLR connectors together. Don't they make an umbilical and we can put a thing on the end and another pigtail on the end and then run one line, you know, and it's like, oh, if we do that, then we could put returns so then we could have monitors. Let's do monitors. You know, let's, how come I get feedback all the time? Well, Alltech just came up with a thing called the third octave equalizer. You know, this type of stuff. So I mean, it was Stanley. It was uh, uh, Gene and Roy Clare, Jack Maxson, and, and three or four of his partners at Shoko that during this entire time frame invented live sound. Mm. All a huge part of it. You know, every one of them, you know, and uh, our industry would not be an industry without those 10 guys, 10, 12, whatever, 
uh, kind of thing, you know. So that was uh, that was pretty spectacular. Incredible. Yeah, it really it really was something else. It was at the very height of it. But Stanley, like I would you know get back to that was was like, well, listen, um, why don't you go in and start designing systems? You know, sit down, you know, and you know, with uh, with with our electrical engineer and acoustic designer and figure out and learn how to design sound systems and do whatever. So I installed everything from high school gymnasiums to courtrooms to uh, touring rigs to God knows what else. Uh, discos, when the disco thing came out. <laughs> Dude, man. Dan was one of the first guys to use a subwoofer, you know, in, in the industry, literally. Um, and he, he designed a sound system for uh, the wall uh, for Pink Floyd. You know, that thing, it was, uh, it was a wall, literally. Uh, it was, I mean, just, it was, it was crazy. And so we had these subwoofers and when disco came out, we designed a small version of these big giant boxes that we were using that would go on a, either end of the dance floor. And so you're out there and you get this with all it's, you know, going on up above it. And we're putting in these things and Stan goes, you're a lighting guy, start designing disco lights. So went, oh God. Wow. Yes, you know? <laughs> so I'm putting, freaking lighting so anyway it was uh uh again life experience man don't turn it down and learn from it you that's know? right always say yes yeah yeah, yeah. that's yeah, brilliant i'm say yes you know <laughs> say that again say that again and cut out nine percent of the time say yes right right 99 <laughs> no you're you're but it's it's it just don't do it don't turn it down you know yeah. Yeah, because you never know we learn. Hey, can you do us a favor? So let's say the listeners out there who want to do what you what you have done and what you do, they want to follow in your footsteps. So uh, a young person wants to, uh, you know, post COVID, wants to learn how to go on tour and be a mix engineer and, you know, uh, and do all this thing. Walk us through a typical day. For those who may not be familiar with it, walk us through a typical day on tour. First of all, what time does your day start? Because I know the answer to this. <laughs> the day never ends. That's right. That's when it starts. <laughs> there's, no, there's no beginning and ending, right? It's a cycle. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's, let's do this. Yeah. Um, A-list guys, you're on a tour bus. So, again, you're, as you know, we all know, your day never ends because you get on the bus, you fall asleep, you wake up and you go into the gig, you know, kind of deal. Um, but you know, for the, uh, for the years that, uh, after, <clears throat> after we stopped using tour buses, we started flying, uh, all the time. So my day usually would begin about three in the morning, you know, so I could get up, get, uh, get me, you know, start the tour, you know, to the airport. Cause my flights were always at five thirty to six thirty. You know, and, and so then once we got out there, then it was everybody, you know, you get out there. So you get up, you get on the airplane. I would get you guys to the hotel and then I would grab the drummer and he and I would go over to the venue and he would get his drums up, get them tuned, get everything going on. I would get the stage set. I would get everything going. This is usually anywhere from um, noon to two. You know, or two, you know, two, three, whatever, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually land around 11, yeah. you know, depending on where we're going. And then by the time I get everybody to the hotel and checked in and then get me over there. So I always had my end at two o'clock, the band in at four, you know, type of thing. And so I would hopefully, 
have everything ready for the band when they get in there. And then sound check was usually four to five, five thirty if there were issues, sometimes six. And then dinner. And then an eight o'clock show, usually get over a 10 because we always did, you know, 90 to two hour shows. And so uh, get the band back to the hotel and then hang out with, uh, with Popstar uh, at the Merch World and do that thing. And then in the meantime, while that's going on, I would settle, you know, do the money and get that going and make sure that was all good. And thank God we didn't do a lot of percentages. It was like, you know, yeah, give me that 50 bazillion dollars now, cashier's check, and I don't want one from your wife's hair salon. You understand me? <laughs> Just a fun check. You know, or cash monies. And don't make me, because you never know what that money's been through, if you will. <laughs> anyway, um, so you would do that and then get back to the hotel midnight, one o'clock, and then get up at three or four and go do the same thing. You know, day after day after day. And you do that after a while. So, how do you get there? Hey, you got to be, like we've talked at the very beginning of this thing, you need to know about music. You have to know about music. You have to have a passion. And you also have to understand that your name is not on the marquee. You understand that? You are not, they're the pop star, not you. The band is the pop star, not you. Your job is to make them smile all day long, period. Now, that comes with learning how to deal with people, and that's uh, a lifelong <laughs> event, if you will. It never ends. Because okay. like, oh, man, I've never run into that before. So, But you also have got to have, along with that, a technical skill. And if you think just because you put some beats together – um, and can make it go unst, 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 and plug a computer in and turn the bass up that you're a sound person, um, well, you know, stay at the taco place and good luck with that career. Uh, but no, you have to understand, and one of the biggest, you know, you've got to have, like I said, music. Um, there's so many directions, I need to pull it all in. There's one of the, one of the things that I taught my students Four things you have to be able to do, and you've got to know is a signal flow. Mm -hmm. How do you plug it in, and in what order does it go? Right? So, if you got signal flow, then you can gain stage, go in and get the gain right. Every single channel on that console, regardless of the instrument, has got to have the meters all doing this, not. A lot of this, where one's way up here, another one's down there, because if your gain isn't correct, then how are you going to EQ it? Mm. And if you can't EQ a signal properly, what frequency is that? I'm asking you, what is that? Oh, oh geez, yeah. No, now you're putting me on the spot. <laughs> I know. See, that's, that's me as the monitor guy. Right. Because going through the wedge and you're going like this staring at me at the monitor console i'm going hey you sound real good today i don't know what that is you don't know you've got to identify and get rid of it immediately That's you know right. that kind of so ear training That's you've right. got to be able to eq it and if your eq isn't correct then the final number four your mix is going to sound awful wow. gate state or signal flow 
gain stage, EQ, and then finally the mix. Be it a front of house mix or be it a monitor mix, the balance has got to be there. Can we can we talk about for a minute? God bless monitor engineers. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you the hell that I have put some monitor engineers through. <laughs> so, what's that? I've witnessed it. Yeah. <laughs> so, by the way, but that's another job that you wore oftentimes on the Kirk Whalum gig. Uh, they would provide, sometimes it's, they would provide a house uh, engineer to do monitors, but you oftentimes would come up on stage and ring the monitors first. Get I did the, that. No. Yeah, get the monitors. Yeah. Would, every one of them. Yeah, and get all the musicians comfortable with like a, a nominal kind of mix, you know, and then you would jump to front of house. So yeah. that was your seventh job title. <laughs> well, and my sound check usually was first song, you know, because I was more concerned. I knew I could get a mix together within the first song, you know, and again, that comes with experience. That's not ego. It just comes with experience. And if you can't get a mix together in the front first, then stay at the taco shop. You know, well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I mean, <laughs> for, for the most part, but it's the, the comfort on stage, you know, if you and, and you know this better than anybody. I mean, God, think of all the bands that you've toured with that the day that it is like, oh, God, this is great. Or the day that you don't notice the sound. All of a sudden, the comfort level of the band goes from like, I hate my job to. This is why I'm in this biz. And you don't worry about anything because everything sounds the way it's supposed to be. Everything is. And that's the goal that you try to achieve every single show for your band. And I call them my band because they are my band. You know, they're my road family. But these are the guys that, you know, if you're like, I'm like the, the band's secret service, if you will. You know, I'm the guy that will take a bullet for you, whether you know it or not you know, be from the house crew or if you, cause we didn't carry production, you know, when we were out there, you know, on, on a lot of stuff. And so I'm depending upon, you know, on local production services. And as we all know, that can be very special sometimes. <clears throat> so, well, and, and, to, and to speak on that, when we did South by Southwest, I think it was 2018 with Kat Graham. Uh, yeah. We weren't able to, I, I flew with the band out there. Uh, we brought an LA based band, but I wasn't able to bring a crew. So I knew since you were based in Austin, I was like, okay, I know that if I call Mac, I'm going to have to make one phone call and then he's going to get the rest done. And he's not like, and th here's the beauty of it. Hey Mac, here's the gig. Here are the specs. Here's what I can pay you. Can you do it? Yes or no. The moment you say yes is the moment that all of a sudden, all that pressure is now lifted off of me as the music director because I know I have a more than competent production manager. And once you took the ball, bro, that's, I didn't even hear from you. You were like, I, I would check in. Hey, Mac, how's it going? Oh, don't worry. Everything's fine. I even came to the gig, you know, in the middle of like a sound check or a changeover because I was working with another band. And you're like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you're like. Actually. What's that? You came over and hung out during the show. Right, right, because I was on another, in another right. venue with another band. Anyway, I knew that once I hired you, that's it. It was done. Like, I, I didn't have to stress, worry, 
you know, I knew that you would, speaking of taking a bullet, I knew that you would take the proverbial bullet for me and get the fucking job done come hell or high water and make sure that the artist was enamored with everything that just elated, you know. And I think she had a good time. Oh, she had a blast. Are you kidding me? Yeah. She had a blast. Yeah, that was fun. I enjoyed that big time, man. I really did. I enjoyed mixing that. And it comes down to like what you were talking about, you know, the the thing about, you know, it's like you do it, cool, I'll see you later kind of deal. Yep. And through the years, and this is huge, this is for young guys coming up, do not be afraid to make a mistake and dear God, don't be afraid to be fired, you know, because it happens. <laughs> I say that all the time. Yes. Dude, it happens and it will happen and it will continue to happen. But you cannot ever let that affect your self-confidence. You can never ever let that affect what you do while you're on the job. It's like, oh, should I do this or should I do that? Or, oh, dear God, whatever. You know, that, that kind of thing. Just go in and do what you do. You know, you've got the confidence to do it. It's like every time you step on a stage, you know it's going to be, I'm going to kill tonight. You know, and every time I get behind a console, it's like, yeah, this is good. You know, it's hopefully. I mean, that you know, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, the, end, that's the end goal, you know, the day's end. Yeah. Hopefully it's like that. But you've got to have that self-confidence and a proper ego in place to be able to do what, uh, do that, you know? And it's so funny. One of the, one of the premises I teach is the, the delicate balance between arrogance and confidence. Oh, big and, time. Yeah, yes. And, and it is a delicate balance and it's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I'm glad you do that. Yeah. It, it's just, that's, that's one of the things that you cannot ever, ever assume. <laughs> what a word. <laughs> you know, that, like I'm the deal, you know? <laughs> right. Oh, it, deal you know like well i'm on the gig don't worry about it (laughs) shut up and do your job that's right do that go in do your thing make sure it happens let your work speak for you you know that that whole deal this was perfect because i always i always like to close the interview with words of wisdom and that that really is a a fantastic word of wisdom you know mac uh, like i said earlier uh, and you know me, I don't, I'm, I'm not saying this to blow you up. You have taught me so much over the years and I'm really grateful for that. Um, there's been, there's been you and, uh, you know, a, a handful of other people like yourself who have been mentors in a way in my life I- indirectly without, without us sitting down and saying, okay, you're officially my mentor, you know, but, <laughs> but uh, you're definitely one of the, 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 the short list of, of those people. And I really, really am grateful for that. Well, man, I cannot thank you enough for those kind words. That uh, means the world to me. It yeah. really does. Um, what a deal. Absolutely. Hey, you ready for some rapid-fire questions? Oh, dear God. Go. Name three touring essentials. Touring essentials. Uh, ears. Learn your music. Learn what you're going to mix. You have to have that. A proper toolkit and a proper knowledge of your equipment. If it's just house gear someplace, make sure you know exactly what it is. You have to have that with you. But a, a toolkit, man, you gotta have a multi-tool, you gotta have a soldering iron, you gotta have a cable checker, you gotta have audio adapters, you gotta have, I mean, all kinds of crap, you know, whatever on that stuff, that's huge. 
you know, but number one, if you're mixing a band, you get a call to do that. You go through their library and you listen to their music. So you know what you're walking into period. And I'll say this real quick. I accepted a tour and I didn't listen to the music and I walked in and it was a harp player and it was cello, violin, viola, harp, acoustic guitar, <laughs> electric bass, and acoustic piano, and six vocals. No DIs on stage, all open mics. I didn't do my research, and I would have turned it down in a blink of an eye because it was only me out there. So anyway, so all right, next. I think I know the answer to some of these already, but wow, that was enlightening. Song or band that changed your life? A song or a band or that changed artists, you? yeah. Um, oh, man, that's uh, <laughs> Catch a Falling Star. Who's that? Song Falling Star, Bing Crosby. Ah. Or Perry Como, sorry. Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket and never let it go away. That thing. And also Harry Belafonte. When I first heard Harry Belafonte as a kid, his the 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 Caribbean, the the the, the Calypso, yeah. you know, Cuban influence, all of that, it just like exploded. And I wore those records out, drove my parents nuts. So, yeah. <laughs> Love it. What's in what's in your playlist rotation now? Um, to be honest with you, I don't listen to music. What do you listen to? <laughs> <laughs> Silence. I love it. I love it. I love it. All right. Speak- if I do, if I do listen, it's going to be classical, yeah. you know, or what I, or what I'm mixing, but I've heard enough music in my lifetime, if you will, <laughs> is that I don't like to be away from it for a while just to keep, you know, when I do walk in and sit down at a console, it's fresh. That and is- I'm not a by it. Yeah. That it still stimulates you when you hear it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Good point. Good point. But um- Emily Claire Barlow. Canadian singer, spectacular, wonderful, wonderful lady. Okay. Uh, from Toronto, I believe. Okay. Also sings in French, but. Uh, she'll yeah. be, she'll be added in the notes. I'm looking all this up. Okay. So as an entertainer, you know, we've been in the business for so long and you kind of just alluded to it. It's hard to be entertained. So what does it for you? Um, someone that can get up on stage and talk to an audience, not about, I wrote this song in 1927 for my wife because I love her dearly. Like, oh, dear God, dude, move on. You know, no, it's like, man, can you believe, I bought this watch the other day, you know, and go on and and do, do that thing. And you sit there and you absolutely become enraptured as an entertainer. You may be the best singer, guitar player, saxophone player, piano player in the world, but if you can't talk to your audience as a human being and not talk about music, 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 whatever, then who cares? Whatever. Tab Benoit. That's right. I don't know if you're familiar with Tab Benoit. Or not. Yes, okay. Yes. That's one of the shows I've ever mixed in my life. Of course, he's a great player, but man, I like, I, I, he should be a comedian, you know? Anyway, so there you go. Audience. I love it. I love it. What do you do on those long travel days to keep from going insane? Uh, read. I like it. What are you currently reading? Um, I've got a, uh, a Richard Russo book right now that I'm reading. And then I also have a, uh, a book. Uh, oh, God, I just lost the guy's name. Um, 
did uh, something in the White City and uh, uh, Beast in the Garden, whatever. But it's a it's a story. Uh, he's a uh, a biological uh, fiction writer, and it, this is about uh, uh, Winston Churchill, you know, during the war and what he did. And I can't, I don't, I don't have it in front uh, of me. David Barron. Uh, say it again. David Barron. No, no, it's okay. not. Um, I just I've got to forgot his name. All good. All right, we'll look it up. Okay, what's your guilty pleasure? Cigars. Ooh, yeah. Cubans yeah. or do you care? Yeah, say that again. Cubans or do you care? Uh, uh, Cuban. yeah. uh Or there's uh, there's a few other that you know that that I do. You know, I, I, there's some Dominicans that I really like and whatever. But man, I I got spoiled spoiled big time by by Cubans. A, a being in Cuba, you know, for yeah. one thing. You know, and it's just. You know, <laughs> You know, what do you do? And the other thing is, one of my best friends in the world uh, it was a professor at the University of Minnesota, and we went to Cuba together. But one of his cohorts <laughs> uh, was in Cuba as a uh, as an adjunct professor down there, teaching business management and communication, whatever. And so he sends boxes, and so I get the uh, a little a little treat from that on things. So I've got a bunch of Cubans. Wow. I remember when we used to do all those tours down in the Caribbean, uh, we would always, uh, Sean, yourself, myself, we would always go down there and try to snag some good cigars wherever we could. Yeah. <laughs> so, still a pleasure. I still love it. Had one the other day. <laughs> nice. What's your favorite libation to go with that cigar? Oh, boy. That's, uh, that's going to be hard. I'm going to say probably, um, here's a plug. Uh, I really like Red, Be- Red Breast. Irish, yes, and I really like uh, Conamera Irish, which is uh, an Isla, you know, like Lagavulin single malt, whatever. But I prefer, I'm actually like Irish with a cigar better than I do a single malt. Wow, you know, I don't know why it's kind of crazy, but I'm I've been on a red breast kick for a while. That and the Conamera when I can find it. Yeah, the red breast is good. I've had that. I've never had the Conamero, but but you, uh, you know, you uh, like I said, you were very instrumental in teaching me about some good Irish whiskeys. (laughs) 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 And finally, man, what would you do if you weren't a career musician? I would be a photojournalist or an archaeologist, one or the other. Ah, and I think or or what historian. I think you'd be good at all three of those things because you love details and you're very good at making sure to get the, the, those details straight, if you will. Well, thank you. Yeah. yeah. That's the deal. Tell us now, tell us again the name of the club that you have the residency at in Austin. It is Parker Jazz Club. And not after Charlie Parker, but after Chris Kimura is the owner. Uh, Chris is a sax player, flute player, singer. And it's named after his son, Parker. ParkerJazzClub.com. And we live stream every Friday and Saturday night, 8 o'clock. And the uh, go online, either do it on Facebook or go to ParkerJazzClub.com and go on uh, uh, and get on there, one or the other. Okay, now you <laughs> mentioned that you guys are bringing back, uh, you know, uh, s- small capacity shows. Yes, 35 people, pretty much to the max. We just started that last weekend. 
I love that. So everybody can check you out online with those streaming shows. And then, you know, uh, as this pandemic gets better, when we're in Austin, I encourage all the listeners, go check out Mac because you won't be disappointed. And if Mac's mixing the show, then you know there's some badass music going to be happening. Thank you for that, man. I greatly appreciate it. You know, man, Wynton Marsalis has been on the stage, Tom Scott, uh, Nestor Torres. We had the Count Basie big band up there. Uh, when Harry Connick was in town, right, literally three or four days before we had Curtis Steigers and, uh, on, on stage. And then a couple days later, Harry Connick was in town and Harry was sick. He didn't come over because he's a friend of uh, uh, Chris knows him, you know, the owner of the club. But his entire band came over along with Kamasi Washington and basically took over the club with our with our, our house band playing that night. And they went about four hours straight just up there jamming. And it was an unbelievable night. So you never know what you're going to walk into. That you know? is so cool. That is uh, so cool, man. Yeah. All right, Mac, once again, man, I love you, bro. Thank you so much, man. Mikey, you got it, brother. Download, subscribe, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Follow The Career Musician at Facebook, Instagram, and sign up for The Career Musician newsletter at thecareermusician.com. I'm just a nomad, nowhere man. Writing the songs in this one-man band. I know man, yeah. I'm no This is Nomad, host and creator of the Career Musician Podcast, and I am thoroughly stoked to be an official member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Pantheon Podcast Network is the first of its kind as an all-music-based podcast collective. Please be sure to check us out at pantheonpodcast.com for more info.